Um, I want to welcome you to week seven. We're now in, in week seven of our series called Equipped, where we're looking at spiritual disciplines, which are just uh, different practices that we're called to incorporate into our lives so that we can become spiritually, we can grow as spiritually healthy people. And um, today we're going to talk about um, maybe the most familiar spiritual discipline, maybe the one that first comes to your mind when you think about stuff Christians are supposed to do, and that's the spiritual discipline of prayer. But in saying that, I'm not foolish enough to think that I can cover something as massively important as prayer in one week. And so, I just want to give you kind of a forecast of where this series is going. We are actually going to talk about prayer for the next eight weeks. And the, the, you probably are wondering, you know, what are, you know how's that going to work or, you know, how can you do that? Uh, the truth is eight weeks isn't enough to scratch the surface of prayer. Um, but throughout the next eight weeks, what we're going to do is talk about how to use prayer to process the most difficult situations and complex emotions that you and I are going to face in this life. Um, and so throughout the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about how to process the feeling of helplessness in prayer. If you're in a position where you're dealing with things that are beyond your control and you don't know what to do, uh, I think next week is going to be great for you. It's going to be all about how to process helplessness in prayer. We're going to talk about how to process doubt in prayer and guilt in prayer and anger and tears and fears and all kinds of stuff. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Psalms looking at that because Psalms is, we said this in the front end of this series, it's just a prayer book that will show you and I how to process every conceivable life situation and emotion through prayer. Um, but before we get into that, before we get kind of granular with how prayer works, what I want to do today is get outside the Psalms for one week and, and give you kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the discipline of prayer itself. And to do that, I don't think there is a better text in Scripture that will allow us to do that um, than the most famous prayer in history. It's a prayer that Jesus himself gave us, which is called the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Let me go ahead and read that on the front end. Jesus said, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. This is God's word. Um... Before we actually get to the prayer, the first thing that I wanted to point out is, is something that uh, maybe we don't take enough time to think about, and that's these introductory statements that Jesus gives us before actually giving us the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus tells us in, in verse 5, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Uh, these were the highly religious people in Jesus' day who were all about their public image. Uh, but then, sort of surprisingly to me, 
In verse 7, Jesus chases that by saying, uh, when you pray, also don't be like the idolaters or the pagans or the heathens or you know, different translations translate that differently. What Jesus is referring to is highly irreligious people uh, who were basically all about their desires and nothing else. There's a lot of things that you can point out about these verses, but the thing that I, I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus doesn't even speak to a category of people who are not praying. And, and what you can see in Jesus' words here, what he's getting across is the idea, this might surprise you, but what Jesus' words are getting across is that there is no such thing as a prayerless heart. Uh, a couple of weeks back when I was up here, I shared a quote with you um, from David Foster Wallace, who's not a believer, and he famously said that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. He was not a Christian, but he said, functionally, there's no such thing as atheism. Uh, Because everybody worships, the only choice we get is what to worship. And in the same vein, what Jesus' words are are getting across here is that whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are traditional or modern, whether you are spiritual or secular, there's really no such thing as a prayerless heart. Because the human heart is designed in such a way that there there are things that we're going to experience in this life. There's times that we're going to enter into in this life in which the human heart can't help itself but to call out recognizing that there is a God who's higher than us and we really need his help. And so what Jesus is giving us in the Lord's Prayer is is basically a guide that should teach us how to pray correctly in a way uh, that not only honors God but also is is life-giving and healing and transformative to us. And and again, you know, when when you look at the Lord's Prayer as a whole, this might sound very obvious to you, but I do think that that um, this is worth bearing out, and this, is, this idea is kind of what's going to undergird everything that we talk about today. The Lord's Prayer, it, it, Jesus did not, in giving us this prayer, intend for us to simply repeat these words. And we know that because, first off, Jesus himself did not, after, a, after giving us this prayer, Jesus himself never actually prayed this prayer, and neither did anybody else in Scripture. And so either everybody in Scripture prayed wrongly, or people have generally misunderstood this prayer. Because throughout the centuries, what's interesting is that people have taken this prayer and, and we've, we've misused it and we've misunderstood it and we've approached it as something that we're supposed to just sort of recite and repeat in this kind of thoughtless, robotic way when that was not Jesus' intent for us. The Lord's Prayer is really meant to be a guide that informs the way that we approach God in prayer. And actually, if, if you approach it and really pay attention to it, you'll find that embedded in this prayer are at least five separate kinds of prayer, all of which need to become an integral part of our prayer lives. And um, as we walk through these five kinds of prayer, you'll probably find that maybe one or two of these come very naturally to you, but maybe the other two or or three really aren't something that you're super familiar with or or comfortable with, but in giving us all five of these kinds of prayer, what Jesus is saying is that every one of these kinds of prayer needs to become a regular part of our rhythm as we approach God in prayer. And and that's what our time is going to be spent uh, doing this morning. And so what I'd like to give you is five different kinds of prayer that Jesus says we need if we're going to experience all that there is to experience in this thing called the discipline of prayer. So number one, The first kind of prayer that Jesus says we need is what I'm going to refer to as remembering prayer. And you see this in verse 9. Jesus said, Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. A.W. Tozer, a famous theologian, once said that what comes into your mind 
when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. And that idea is, is really what in, uh, uh, undergirds this kind of prayer, what we're calling remembering prayer. Um, when, you, when Jesus is calling us to, to pray the words, Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, what he's commanding us to do, what he's teaching us to do, is to take all the time that's necessary, resetting your view of God, and remember who it is that you're actually approaching when you approach the throne of grace in prayer. Now, this is the first kind of prayer that Jesus calls us into, and there's a reason that this kind of prayer comes first. First and foremost, I think this is fairly obvious, it's because you can't get to know God personally unless you see him clearly, unless you see him as he is. That's the rules for absolutely any relationship. If you're going to get to know somebody deeply, you have to first and foremost see them clearly. But beyond that, the reason that this kind of prayer is first in the Lord's Prayer and and, and most foundational in the Lord's Prayer is because it's this kind of prayer that gives us the thing that you and I need most, which is for the truth about who God is to become real to us. Now, let me kind of give you a real-world example that I'm sure you can see in your own life um, or or certainly in the lives of, of people around you. Christians are people who believe, Christians are people who can say, I believe that God loves me, which is an absolutely amazing statement if you think about it for any length of time. Uh, Christians, of course, believe that God uh, is the creator of everything, and he is the God, the being, to whom one day absolutely every human being will give an account, which means that in the end, God's opinion is the only opinion that ultimately matters. Right? So Christians are people who believe that God loves me. And I'm willing to bet that, that more than most of the people listening to me right now would say, I believe that. I believe that God loves me. But what's, what's fascinating is that you can take an individual who, who, who genuinely believes that God loves them, and yet that same individual experiences criticism and they come apart. Or that same individual goes through a breakup and, and faces rejection, and it's like a death sentence to him. Or that same individual... Um, is just handed a disappointment by life, something that they worked hard for, something that they really hoped was going to work out for them, doesn't wind up working out for them, and functionally it's like their entire life is over. And the question is, how do you reconcile those two ideas? How can somebody believe that the, that the God, the only God whose opinion ultimately matters, loves them and celebrates them and rejoices over them and all this, and yet they're so devastated by the opinion of another person or you know, the fact that a career goal was never achieved? And the answer to that is because it's entirely possible to believe something intellectually, to believe something intellectually about God without the truth of who he is being something that you experience in a way that changes you. And so I say that to say that what you and I need most fundamentally is for the truth about who God is to capture us in such a way that it reorients our loves and it reorders our desires, and it reconfigures what it is that we're building the foundation of our lives on so that we can withstand and actually grow through everything that we're bound to experience on this side of eternity, living in a broken world. And in saying that, I'm saying all that to say that that cannot happen. That, that, that capturing of our hearts in the presence of God such that the foundation of our life is reconfigured and the, the loves of our heart are reordered, that cannot happen apart from practicing this kind of prayer that Jesus is commanding us to practice here. This is why this comes first. 
What remembering prayer is fundamentally about, it's taking all the time that you and I need to remind ourselves of who God is until the truth of who he is and what he's like captures us in a way that genuinely reorders us, puts us back, if necessary, takes us apart and puts us back together. And maybe you're wondering, okay, I, I, you know, I, I get that I'm supposed to remember who he is, but, but you know, that kind of begs the question, well, what is he like? And as I was putting this teaching together, it dawned on me that what Jesus has to say here, just in, if you look at just verse 9, what Jesus is calling us to remind ourselves about God in this verse, there's actually an incredible amount of knowledge about God just in verse 9. And as I was thinking through what Jesus tells us first and foremost to pray, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, a phrase you've heard probably your whole life, what dawned on me is that Jesus is commanding us to understand and accept all of these truths about God that, at least according to my human mind, aren't supposed to go together. Let me, let me walk you through this. First off, Jesus commands us to remind ourselves that we have God as a father. Now, maybe you've heard this before. The Aramaic word that Jesus used, he spoke Aramaic in his day, uh, the Aramaic word that he used was the same word that little kids would use to call out to their dad in Jesus' day, which is why a number of rabbis heard Jesus teaching us to pray like this and were kind of shocked because that sounded almost irreverent to them. What Jesus is, is calling us to remind ourselves of is first and foremost that God is close to us and he's, he's intimate with us like a father. But the very next thing Jesus calls us to remind us is that he's, he's a father in heaven. That's just the first part. That's just the, really the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Now that means that while God is our Father, He's also infinitely above us, sovereignly ruling and reigning as the King of the universe. And, and pardon me for saying, but when I try to put those two ideas together, I can't because they don't make sense that those two things could be compatible. You, you can either be intimately close to me as a Father or infinitely above me as a celestial King, but you can't be both at least according to my understanding. And yet Jesus says that's exactly what God is like. And before you move anywhere else in prayer, you need to remember that God's like that. This reminded me, this week I was reading in Jeremiah, and I came across a verse, and it's, it's Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23, that encapsulates the same idea that Jesus is, is calling us to remember here. In Jeremiah 23, God is, is um, describing himself. I think this is so amazing. Here's what, here's what he says about himself in Jeremiah 23, 23. He says, am I a God who is only near and not a God who is far away? I love statements like that because they remind me, I can't figure God out. He's too big for me. And in a, a question like that, you know, it, it begs the question for me, so wait a minute, is God, is God near to us as a father or is God far away from us as a, as a celestial ruler? And the answer is yes. And the next thing Jesus commands us to remind ourselves of, he says, your name be honored as holy. Now, uh, that's probably a statement that you've heard your whole life. You, you're probably familiar with it in the King Jimmy version of the Bible, hallowed be your name. My version, your name be honored as holy. You've probably heard that your whole life, and maybe you haven't thought a ton about that, but again, this is a statement that I, I can't help but see how paradoxical this is. Because first off, for, for Jesus to say that we need to remind ourselves that God is holy. Uh, holiness is a concept I don't think we readily grasp in our culture today. For God to be holy means that God's perfect. 
It means that God is the standard against which everything will be measured. And frankly, it means that he is, this is language of the covenant. This means that he is completely unapproachable in his perfection. There's this story in the Old Testament where actually David had this, you call it maybe a misunderstanding with God. The Ark of the Covenant was, was being moved. And as they, the, the nation of Israel was transporting it, somebody tripped and so the ark started to go down and somebody put out their hand to try to catch and brace the ark of the covenant and drop dead on the spot. And what that story is meant to convey is the idea that human beings don't get to haphazardly approach the presence of a God as holy as this one without dire consequences. That's the holiness of God. But the very next thing that Jesus calls us to remind ourselves of is that this God has a name. Your name be honored as holy. Now for God to have a name means that this God, this holy God, has identified himself and he's made himself knowable. Meaning that this God is not just some impersonal force. He's a person that you and I can know. So again, the question is, is this God approachable as a personal God or is he unapproachable as a holy God? Is this God intimately close to us as a father or infinitely above us as a ruler? And the answer to all of that is yes. And the first step in prayer is just accepting how big this God is. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here. Uh, this is something I've realized about myself, not only in preaching, but in listening to preaching. I am a very conceptual and theoretical guy, and so I like preaching that is highly conceptual and theoretical. What I've learned is not everybody does. And so there, there are probably people here today, the engineers of the house, perhaps, that are very tangible, very practical people. And maybe you hear this idea of remembering prayer, where I'm just supposed to talk to myself about who God is. Maybe somebody's listening to this and thinking, okay, but, but you've got you to put handles on that for me. You've got to show me how that's practical or useful because this is a little bit too much up in the air. I just want to say I think this kind of prayer is the most useful and practical thing imaginable. I think that this kind of prayer will help you personally, and it's the only thing that will help you personally face everything that this life's going to throw at you. And, and, and to, let me walk through that for a moment. I'm taking more time on this idea than any other idea because it's the most foundational, so just hang on for a second. In, in the West, we are, you can see this on social media, you can see this everywhere. We are all about our feelings in the West. We, are, we have become a therapeutic culture. Uh, we have become a psychologized culture. We're all about our self-image. We're all about our identity. We're all about our feelings. We're all about um, our self-esteem. And so in our culture, and, and you see this as clearly in the church as outside the church, there's a tendency, I think you would agree with this, there's a tendency for us to recognize the importance of seeing God as this loving, compassionate, merciful Father, while I don't think we readily grasp how important it is to see him as a high, sovereign, wise, celestial king. Maybe if you did a self-inventory, you could see, yeah, I do tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other. I just want to show you why both are important real quickly. First off, it is absolutely vitally important for me to know God as a father in, in specific times in my life, namely when I fail. When I completely blow it as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, as a leader, as whatever, I need to know God as a father in those times. I need to know that when I turn the corner and come running back to God, he sees me just the way I see my four kids. He comes running to meet me, wraps his arms around me, and rejoices over me. We need to know that in some times in our lives. I just want to offer you that there are some times in your life when you're going to need more than that. If I went to the doctor this week and the blood test came back, 
and they said, I'm sorry, Mr. Cox, you've got three months, and there's nothing left to do but get your affairs in order. I'm just going to be honest with you. In that moment, I need more than a father to wrap his arms around me. In that moment, I need to know that this God that I serve, this God that's invited me into relationship with himself through Christ, is a high, sovereign, celestial king ruling and reigning over everything that I experience in my life and sovereignly ordaining in his wisdom to ensure that all things will eventually work together for my good, though I might never be able to plumb the depths of his wisdom on this side of eternity. It's a matter of time before you and I discover that we need a full-orbed understanding of God. And so the first, what Jesus is talking about here, when we talk about prayer... Jesus is saying that, that, that genuine prayer begins with its foundation. Jesus is calling us to remind ourselves of who exactly this mind-blowing, category-bursting God actually is. Because our hearts are not ready for anything in this life, and we're not even ready to face everything else that prayer is going to call us to face until we begin with stilling ourselves in his presence and reminding ourselves of who he is. And I'm going to be honest with you, the more that I thought about this one idea, this could easily be a teaching. And if I had the time, I'd stay here, but I don't want to keep you here for two hours. So that's the first kind of prayer, remembering prayer. And it leads really to everything else, but, but very obviously it leads to the second kind of prayer that Jesus says we need to have here. That's number two, relinquishing prayer. By the way, everything today is going to start with an R. And so if you're a fan of alliteration, this is an amazing Sunday for you. Number two, we need relinquishing prayer. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, unless you and I learn to practice the kind of prayer that we just covered, we will not be able, it'll be impossible to genuinely practice this kind of prayer. And even if we try to force ourselves to do it, we'll never be able to experience the genuine rest um, and the peace that's available to us in this kind of prayer. So the question is, what is relinquishing prayer? What are we talking about when we talk about that? When Jesus is calling us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, what Jesus is talking about is developing a posture of heart within ourselves that allows us to say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing in this world. I don't even understand what you're doing in my life, but I don't have to in order to trust you. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, that most, if not every, every person listening to me right now, I'm going to try to hit you where you live, I think we spend pretty much all of our lives bouncing between two places. And I'm willing to bet that, that you're, in, you're in one of these places right now. Um, on the one hand, there's a good chance that you are right now in a place where you have asked God to give you something that you want, he hasn't done it, and you can't figure out why. Uh, you're single and you want to get married. It hasn't worked out, and you can't figure out why. You're married, you want to have kids, it hasn't worked out, uh, you can't figure out why. You're looking for a career change, you want to get into a school, whatever it is, you've asked God for something that you want, he's not given it to you, and you don't know why. Or perhaps you're on the other side of that coin, where God has given you something that you don't want. You've asked him to take it away, he has not, and you can't figure out why. You know, maybe you find yourself where Paul was, where you've, you, you have some sort of thorn in your flesh, whatever that is for you, and you have asked God, God, would you take it away? God, would you take it away? Maybe it's a desire that you didn't ask to have, a temptation that you struggle with, you don't want to have anymore. You've asked him to take it away, he hasn't. Maybe, maybe there's a kind of pressure in your life 
Um, maybe there's a, there's a kind of, of, of bitterness that you don't want to have, an anxiety, a despondency. Maybe you're affected by things that have happened to you in your past. You, you've come to God. You said, God, would you please take this thing away from me, this burden from me? He hasn't done it, and you can't figure out why. Let me just tell you something you already know. Those can be some of the hardest places in life for us. Because when we find ourselves there for any length of time, the human heart, our hearts, naturally tend to shift into this mindset where we find ourselves saying, God, I know how you're supposed to run my life, and you're not running it the way that I know it's supposed to be run. God, I know how my life's supposed to go. I know, I know how this thing is supposed to work, and it's not working the way that I know it's... God, I know what it takes to make me happy, and you're not giving me the thing that I need. You're not taking away the thing that I need you to take away. That can be some of the hardest places in life for us. But biblically speaking, if you find yourself there, biblically speaking, the only solution to that is for you and I to take all the time that's necessary practicing the kind of prayer we just talked about until we realize, God, you're God and I'm not, so that we can get to the point where we're able to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. I just recently heard somebody explain that that sleep experts uh, talk about two different kinds of sleep. You know, you have normal sleep and then you have REM sleep, rapid eye movement, which is deep sleep. Um... And apparently, I thought this was interesting, no matter how much, this actually explains a lot, especially when you have young kids in your house, no matter how much sleep you actually get, no matter how long a period of time you spend being unconscious, unless you spend several hours in REM sleep, in deep sleep, it won't matter. You're not going to wake up feeling rested. And I say that to say that, that when you and I learn how to practice relinquishing prayer, what that gives us access to is deep sleep for our soul. And, and instead of leaving you there, because the whole heart of this series is to get as practical as possible. I want to I give you an example of what relinquishing prayer sounds like. And this is heavy. <clears throat> this is a quote from John Calvin. Um, and uh, before I read this to you, I just think it's interesting. You know, John Calvin, uh, his ideas even today are hotly debated, if you know anything about Calvinism and Reformed theology and the TULIP acronym and all that kind of stuff. What, what, what's... What dawned on me, you know, in reading this quote is a lot of times we, we, we have this tendency to argue about these theologians' ideas and we forget that they're just, they were just people. They were just, uh, you know, a, a, a boy or a girl, a child of God, dealing with all the same stuff that you and I are trying to figure out while following Jesus. And uh, this might surprise you, but John Calvin experienced an insane amount of suffering in his life, as many people did in the day and age in which he lived. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he actually... Um, he saw the death of his first wife, but, but in addition to that, and that's what this quote is about, he saw the death of his infant son, a little boy named, named uh, Jacques, who died after just being days old. This is what John Calvin said. This is how he processed that in prayer. He said, The Lord has inflicted me with a bitter wound in the death of our infant son, but he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. That's what relinquishing prayer sounds like. And when you and I develop the posture of heart that allows us to pray that way, what that kind of prayer does in a way that no other prayer will, what this kind of prayer does is it dismantles bitterness over what happened to you. It dismantles despondency over what is right now happening to you. And it dismantles anxiety over what might happen to you tomorrow. We need relinquishing prayer. Thirdly, Jesus explains to us that we need, number three, requesting prayer. In verse 11, it says, give us today our daily bread. Now, this is the kind of prayer that 
probably comes to mind for most people when they think about prayer. This is the kind of prayer in which we're actually asking God for stuff. And obviously, Jesus is showing us here that that should be a regular part of the rhythm of our prayers. But to me, the most important thing to see about this is where this kind of prayer falls within the context of the Lord's Prayer as a whole. Because what we're seeing here is that Jesus doesn't let us ask for anything we need until we're almost halfway through this prayer. If you really think about that, I think that's pretty wild. And what that's showing us is that it's only after we've reminded ourselves of who God is and taken the time to surrender to his will, only then are we ready to make requests of him. Only then are our hearts ready to bring requests to God. And I just I want to give you two reasons why that's the case. They're both humbling. Number one, here's, here's why requesting prayer doesn't show up until halfway through. Number one, we have no idea what's best for us until we've been reset in the presence of God. No idea. Uh, every single one of us, I refuse to believe otherwise. There's no nuance to this statement at all. I accept that. I just refuse to believe there's an exception to this. Every single one of us at various times in our lives have strongly desired things and and even prayed for things that would have completely ruined our lives if God said yes. That is exactly why country music theologian Garth Brooks once famously sang, you know the song, No, It's Not Friends in Low Places. It's some of God's greatest gifts are, somebody finish it, unanswered prayers. There it is, unanswered prayers. Look at that. Bunch of country music theologians in the house of God today. I have no idea what I think about that. I had a huge country music phase. Like, right, it, it baffles me when I like I'm not judging people who still like it. I just, I don't anymore. And, but it was like all I listen. It's not the point of this teaching. Point is, uh, I sorry. So first off, it shows up halfway through the prayer because we don't know what's best for us left to our own devices. But secondly, and, and, and maybe more importantly, the reason this doesn't show up until here, I'll make this personal for you, you're not ready to face the problems in your life until you've faced God first. Requesting prayer is, is about just that. It's about facing your problems and your challenges and your issues and just shoveling them to the feet of God. But theologically speaking, you and I aren't ready to, to really face our problems until we face God. All right, this is, there's a little bit more nuance to this one. I'm willing to bet there could be exceptions to this rule, but I am willing to bet that there's a lot of people listening to me right now where there have been times in your life where you did requesting prayer and you brought your request to God and your problems and your issues and your challenges and by the end of your prayer, you felt worse. And I'm just going to make myself vulnerable here. That has happened to me more times than I can count, which was really confusing for me because Philippians says, make your request known to God and then the peace of God which surpasses all understandings will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, there have been so many times in my life when I have faithfully meticulously made my request known to God. And at the outset of that prayer, I had less, less peace instead of more. And that was genuinely disorienting to me. It was unsettling to me. It was discouraging to me. I didn't know, you know, does that mean that, that, that prayer doesn't work or do I just not get it or what's going on here? And I think the rhythm of the Lord's prayer gives us an answer, a key as to why that happens. If that's ever happened to you, Jesus is giving us an answer to why that happens. Here's why. If you and I begin our prayers or allow the focal point of our prayers to be our problems and our challenges and our wants and our issues, then all we're really doing, think think about this, all we're really doing is using prayer to magnify everything that's wrong about our lives. And that's not prayer. That's worrying in God's direction. 
You're just spiritualizing anxiety. That will never lead to peace because that isn't real prayer. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that we do need to make requests to God, but only after we have quieted our souls by reminding ourselves of who he is and surrendered ourselves to his will for our lives. And if I had the time, I really wanted to walk through this, but I don't want to be up here for an hour, but here's some extra credit for anybody who's interested. To me, the greatest example of what it is to make your requests known to God after calming yourself in his presence, there's no greater example of this, uh, in my opinion, than the, what the early church did in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John had just done an overnighter in jail. They were threatened and commanded, stop preaching about Jesus. They get out of jail the next day. They go right to the, the, the early church, the first followers of Jesus, understanding, hey, this might not work out well for us. That's the first time they realized following Jesus isn't going to be fun anymore. And what they do in Acts chapter 4 is the best example I've ever seen of taking all the time necessary to quiet your soul in the presence of God and then make your requests known to him in a way that will bring you more rather than less peace. So thirdly, we need requesting prayer. But number four, we need what I'm calling reflecting prayer. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And in this part of of the Lord's prayer, this is where we're getting into our development as God's people. Because in in telling us to ask God to forgive us our debts, uh, Jesus is, is calling us to get honest about all the areas of our lives that still need to change. Um, I don't know how, how often we think about prayer this way, but when you look at what the, all that the Bible has to say about prayer, prayer is not just about getting to know who God is. It's about you figuring out who you are, which is something that we should never be arrogant enough to assume we've got nailed, done, nailed down because of how deceptive the human heart is, especially to its own faults and issues and, 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 and brokenness. In fact, I'd go far enough to say that if if you have a Christian who either doesn't value prayer the way Scripture calls us to or or, or values it but doesn't practice it for whatever reason, that individual will will never really come to be able to know themselves deeply. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called, it's called Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. I can't recommend it highly enough. But in that book, there's there's a quote uh, that caught my eye. I highlighted this. It says, um, it says, prayer is not simply the solitary exploration of your own subjectivity. Meaning prayer is not about you just you know, yelling at the ceiling about everything you think and feel. He says, you are with capital A, another. You are with another and he is unique. God is the only person from whom you can hide nothing. Before him, you will unavoidably come to see yourself in a new, unique light. Prayer, therefore, leads us to a self-knowledge that is impossible to achieve in any other way. Now, I know I'm being redundant here, but again, we can only do reflecting prayer well if we've done everything that Jesus calls us to before this. Because if, if you and I don't spend time remembering who God is and his love and his kindness and his mercy to us, to the point that we're building our lives on that rather than our own performance and efforts and achievement, then what will happen is, is either we'll completely deny everything that's wrong with us and needs to change because we just can't accept that, or in facing it, it'll be completely traumatizing and we'll just leave with a whole bunch of shame and guilt and condemnation and a whole bunch of things that, that Scripture says aren't from God. And so as we remind ourselves of who God is, 
and his love for us, we grow in the ability to face everything that needs to change about us. And, and more than just face it, uh, uh, we, we grow in the ability to repent of it. And as we repent of it, we, we come to experience in kind of you know, more life-changing ways the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. And so therefore, we grow in the ability to extend that to others. That's really what reflecting prayer is all about. It's our ongoing transformation as God's people, as grace continually amazes us. So fourthly, we need reflecting prayer. But fifthly, and this is going to be our last one, and don't let this title throw you. Fifthly, we need uh, rebelling prayer. And that sounds strange. Hopefully you know what I mean in a second here. Verse 13, Jesus commanded us to say, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now there's lots of things if I had the time you could pull out of just these, these two kind of parallel statements. But at the very least, when Jesus says you need to pray, deliver us from the evil one, this prayer is about bringing to mind the awareness uh, that there is evil in this world. And there is injustice in this world. And there are a whole lot of things wrong in this world. And we're going to do something about that. And we're going to come against that through the discipline of prayer. One thing that we're wise to remember is that God did not create the world as we experience it now. God did not originally create a world filled with, filled with pain and division and, and, and suffering and injustice and death and everything that the human heart intuitively senses is wrong with this reality. All of that is the result of sin, which God himself loved us enough to enter into and take on himself in order to one day heal and destroy the power of without destroying us. That's kind of the gospel 101. But in, in, in saying that, it's important to highlight that because we've only ever experienced this current state of the world with all of its brokenness and and so on and so forth, there's this, there's this tendency for us to just get numb to everything that's going on around us, to just sort of accept it and to have this passive resignation and basically to fall asleep to it. And I say that to say that rebelling prayer is prayer that's designed to wake us up to everything that's going on around us. When I talk about rebelling prayer, I'm talking about rebelling against the brokenness of this world rebelling against evil, rebelling against suffering, accepting that you and I are called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to get involved as agents of God's divine healing in this world, not simply saying, man, this is terrible. I'm glad I'm going to the pearly gates when I'm done here. This prayer is designed to wake us up to that and more than just wake us up to it, to make us agents in God's plan to work his scheme of redemption through this world. A great example of this, a couple of of years ago, we did a, a sermon series through the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah begins, he's, he's living in captivity in Babylon, and he hears this report of how bad things still are in his home country, and it, it breaks him in half to the point that he, he weeps, and in weeping, he takes this burden that he has before God. But what's kind of profound is the whole rest of the story of Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah, through the presence and power of God in his life, becoming the answer to his own prayer. Because what happened in his life is that as he took in, through the discipline of prayer, as he took something to God that he knew was wrong, that act of praying for it instilled in him the desire to make it right. And that's what rebelling prayer is all about. It, it turns us outward to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus during the, the, the vapor that this life is, to do what God has called us to do. And so in, in, in summary here, those are the five kinds of prayer. You have remembering prayer, relinquishing prayer, reflecting prayer, uh, requesting prayer, and rebelling prayer. 
You have no idea how hard it was to boil everything down to it. There's so many different letters I tried, but we got them all with ours. Now, obviously, every one of those prayers, all of them are equally important. All of them are vital because Jesus said all of them are a part of this Lord's Prayer. But the way that I understand this prayer, there is, there's, there is one idea that is it's fundamental and it's foundational to everything about this prayer. And the the key to everything that we talked about this morning is actually found in the very first word Jesus teaches us to use in prayer, which is this this word, Father, which in Aramaic was the very same word that a little kid would use to call out to his dad. The entire prayer hinges on us calling our hearts to remind ourselves that in Jesus we have God as a Father. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because you and I are going to need to know God as a Father if we're going to submit to his will for our lives, even when we don't understand what he's doing. We have got to know God as a father if we're going to trust him to give us what we need, our daily bread, as we make our requests known to him. You're going to need to know God as your father if you're going to ride the discipline of prayer into your own heart and face all the areas of you that still need to change without being completely condemned and crushed by your own failures. And, and lastly, you and I are going to need to know God as our Father if we're going to go out into the world and do what it is He's called us to do without being completely overwhelmed or, or becoming you know, bitter and cynical and hardened. We're going to need to know that our Father goes with us. The entire prayer hinges on that idea. Now maybe that's interesting to you. Maybe you've never thought about it that way, but if you think through this, you you realize that creates a real problem for you and I. And I'm I'm almost done here, so I just ask you to lean into this final part. This idea that we have to know God as a father creates a real problem for you and I. Because the question that just the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer should leave you and I asking is how can somebody like me relate to God with all of the confidence and all of the freedom of a child running to his or her dad? How, how can somebody with my flaws and my failures and my inadequacies, how can I run to, how, how can I approach this God who is in heaven, whose, whose very name is holy, how can I approach that God with anything in my heart but fear? And I, that'll be the last question I want to answer today while the worship team comes on back up. I remember years ago, somebody said something about the prayers of Jesus that was so eye-opening to me, this really spoke to me, and I hope this means something to somebody today. They pointed out that if you study Jesus' prayer life as recorded through the Gospels, you'll discover that every one of Jesus' prayers has at least one thing in common. Every recorded prayer of Jesus, he, he relates to God, he identifies God as Father, which is, makes sense because that's exactly what he calls us to do here. There is exactly one exception in the recorded prayers of Jesus. As far as we know, it's the only time in Jesus' time here, the only time in his existence, that he did not call God his Father. And that one time is when he was hanging on the cross. Where for the first time in his life, instead of saying, My Father, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason it was explained to me, the reason that Jesus could not identify God, the reason he did not call out to God as his father in that moment of his existence is because in that moment of his life, he couldn't. Because in that moment of his existence, Jesus had taken our sin upon himself and was being treated by God as though our sin were his. 
And so he was being forsaken, taking the punishment that you and I instinctively know that we deserve. And now simply because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you and I can approach God, not because of what's in our hearts, but but because of what's in his. Now we can approach God, not on the basis of our effort or our achievement or our anything, but on the basis of the perfect, complete, eternally finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Knowing that by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, God will never condemn you because all of your sins have already been paid for in full by Christ in your place and God will never exact two payments for the same sin. Do you know you have that kind of confidence when you approach God? What the gospel shows you and I is that one time Jesus was forsaken so that you could always be accepted. One time Jesus was forgotten so that you could always be remembered. And one time, one time, the true child of God, Jesus Christ, was kicked out of God's family so that you and I could enter in forever by grace through faith in his name. And now simply because of what Christ has done on your and my behalf, we can do what Hebrews commands us to do, which is to approach the throne of grace with boldness. This is the discipline of prayer. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so foolish looking at how Jesus Christ routinely went back to prayer during his time here, we are so foolish that we can face anything about this life without total dependency on you. Father, would you make us a people that are deeply moved, deeply aware of exactly how much we depend on you for every breath we take, to be the foundation of our lives, to be our hope, the source of our joy, the source of our strength, Father, would you make us a people of prayer, a people that understand what it is to remember you, to relinquish control of our lives to you, to make requests to you, to reflect into our own hearts in your presence and to rebel against the brokenness of this world, knowing that you go with us every step of the way. Would you make us a people of prayer? By grace through faith, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.